Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is the first episode you're listening to, welcome. We're happy to have you. We hope you enjoy the show and you'll find a transcript for this episode in my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. For those subscribed on my Patreon, I apologize that the early access to this episode is only a day early this week. I had a bout of laryngitis and while I never fully lost my voice, it was rough and ugly for a good few days. I tried to record a few days before this and couldn't get through it. Part two of the Dunwich Horror tonight. It'll conclude at the end of May and the very next day, the Pride Month episodes start. I'm really happy with how things are working out for that and I'm excited to have the readers presented to you. All right, on with the show. Four. For a decade, the annals of the Waitleys sink indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community used to their queer ways and hardened to their May Eve and All Hallows orgies. Twice a year, they would light fires on the top of Sentinel Hill, at which times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence, while at all seasons there were strange and portentous doings at the lonely farmhouse. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story even when all the family were downstairs, and they wondered how swiftly or how lingeringly a cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. There was talk of a complaint to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but nothing ever came of it, since Dunwich folk are never anxious to call the outside world's attention to themselves. About 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten, whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face gave all the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the sealed upper part, and from bits of discarded lumber, people concluded that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor, leaving only one vast open void between the ground story and the peaked roof. They had torn down the great central chimney, too, and fitted the rusty range with a flimsy outside tin stovepipe. In the spring after this event, Old Waitley noticed the growing number of whippoorwills that would come out of Cold Spring Glen to chirp under his window at night. He seemed to regard the circumstance as one of great significance and told the loungers at Osborne's that he thought his time had almost come. I whistle just in tune with my breathing now, he said, and I guess they're getting ready to catch my soul. They know it's a going out and don't calculate to miss it. You'll know, boys, arter I'm gone whether they get me or not. If they do, they'll keep up a singing and laughing till break of day. If they don't, they'll kind of quiet down like. I expect them and the souls they hunts for some pretty tough tussles sometimes. On Lamas night, 1924, Dr. Hewton of Aylesbury was hastily summoned by Wilbur Waitley, who had lashed his one remaining horse through the darkness and telephoned from Osborne's in the village. He found old Waitley in a very grave state with a cardiac action and stertorous breathing that told of an end not far off. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedstead, whilst from the vacant abyss overhead there came a disquieting suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping, as of the waves on some level beach. The doctor, though, was chiefly disturbed by the chattering nightbirds outside, a seemingly limitless legion of whippoorwills that cried their endless message in repetitions timed diabolically to the wheezing gasps of the dying man. It was uncanny and unnatural, 
Too much, thought Dr. Hewton, like the whole of the region he had entered so reluctantly in response to the urgent call. Toward one o'clock, old Waitley gained consciousness and interrupted his wheezing to choke out a few words to his grandson. More space, Willie. More space soon. You grows, and that grows faster. It'll be ready to starve you soon, boy. Open up the gates to Yog sithoth with the long chant that you'll find on page 751 of the complete edition, and then put a match to the prison. Fire from Earth can't burn it nohow. He was obviously quite mad. After a pause, during which the flock of whippoorwills outside adjusted their cries to the altered tempo, while some indications of the strange hill noises came from afar off, he added another sentence or two. Feed it regular, Willie. Am I in the quantity? But don't let it go too fast for the place. For if it busts quarters or gets out before he opens the yaks of thoth, it's all over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them. The old uns wants to come back. But speech gave place to gasps again, and Lavinia screamed at the way the whippoorwills followed the change. It was the same for more than an hour when the final throaty rattle came. Dr. Hewton drew shrunken lids over the glazing gray eyes as the tumult of birds faded imperceptibly to silence. Lavinia sobbed, but Wilbur only chuckled whilst the hill noises rumbled faintly. I didn't get him, he muttered in his heavy bass voice. Wilbur was, by this time, a scholar of really tremendous erudition in his one-sided way, and was quietly known by correspondence to many librarians in distant places where rare and forbidden books of old days are kept. He was more and more hated and dreaded around Dunwich because of certain youthful disappearances which suspicion laid vaguely at his door, but was always able to silence inquiry through fear or through use of that fund of old-time gold which still, as in his grandfather's time, went forth regularly and increasingly for cattle buying. He was now tremendously mature of aspect, and his height, having reached the normal adult limit, seemed inclined to wax beyond that figure. In 1925, when a scholarly correspondent from Miskatonic University called upon him one day and departed pale and puzzled, he was fully six and three-quarters feet tall. Through all the years, Wilbur had treated his half-deformed albino mother with a growing contempt, finally forbidding her to go to the hills with him on May Eve and Hallowmas, and in 1926 the poor creature complained to Marnie Bishop of being afraid of him. "'There's more about him as all knows than all can tell you, Mommy,' she says. "'And nowadays there's more nor what I know myself. "'I vow for God I don't know what he wants nor what he's trying to do.'" That Halloween, the hill noises sounded louder than ever, and fire burned on Sentinel Hill as usual, but people paid more attention to the rhythmical screaming of vast flocks of unnaturally belated whippoorwills which seemed to be assembled near the unlighted Waitley farmhouse. After midnight, their shrill notes burst into a kind of pandemoniac cockination which filled all the countryside, and not until dawn did they finally quiet down. Then they vanished, hurrying southward where they were fully a month overdue. What this meant, 
no one could quite be certain till later. None of the country folk seemed to have died, but poor Lavinia Waitley, the twisted albino, was never seen again. In the summer of 1927, Wilbur repaired two sheds in the farmyard and began moving his books and effects out to them. Soon afterward, Earl Sawyer told the loungers at Osborne's that more carpentry was going on in the Waitley farmhouse. Wilbur was closing all the doors and windows on the ground floor and seemed to be taking out partitions as he and his grandfather had done upstairs four years before. He was living in one of the sheds, and Sawyer thought he seemed unusually worried and tremulous. People generally suspected him of knowing something about his mother's disappearance, and very few ever approached his neighborhood now. His height had increased to more than seven feet and showed no signs of ceasing its development. 5. The following winter brought an event no less strange than Wilbur's first trip outside the Dunwich region. Correspondence with the Widener Library at Harvard, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the British Museum, the University of Buenos Aires, and the Library of Miskatonic University of Arkham had failed to get him the loan of a book he desperately wanted. So at length he set out in person, shabby, dirty, bearded, and uncouth of dialect, to consult the copy at Miskatonic, which was the nearest to him geographically. Almost eight feet tall and carrying a cheap new valise from Osborne's general store, this dark and goatish gargoyle appeared one day in Arkham in quest of the dreaded volume kept under lock and key at the college library, the hideous necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred in Olas Wormius's Latin version as printed by Spain in the 17th century. He had never seen a city before, but had no thought save to find his way to the university grounds, where, indeed, he passed heedlessly by the great white-fanged watchdog that barked with unnatural fury and enmity and tugged frantically at its stout chain. Wilbur had with him the priceless but imperfect copy of Dr. D's English version, which his grandfather had bequeathed him, and upon receiving access to the Latin copy, he at once began to collate the two texts with the aim of discovering a certain passage which would have come on the 751st page of his own defective volume. This much he could not civilly refrain from telling the librarian, the same erudite Henry Armitage, A.M. Miskatonic, Ph.D. Princeton, Lit. D. Johns Hopkins, who had once called at the farm and who now politely plied him with questions. He was looking, he had to admit, for a kind of formula or incantation containing the frightful name Yog-Sothoth, and it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguities which made the matter of determination far from easy. As he copied the formula he finally chose, Dr. Armitage looked involuntarily over his shoulder at the open pages, the left-hand one of which in the Latin version contained such monstrous threats to the peace and sanity of the world. Nor is it to be thought, round the text as Armitage mentally translated it, that man is either the oldest or the last of earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us unseen. Yogg-Sothoth knows the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the gate. 
Yogg-Sothoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, and future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod earth's fields and where they tread them still, and why no one can behold them as they tread. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are there many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest eidolon to that shape without sight or substance which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through at their seasons. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadath in the cold waste hath known them, and what man knows Kadath? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean hold stones whereon their seal is engraven, but who hath seen the deep frozen city? or the sealed tower long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles. Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet he can spy them only dimly. Ya, Shabnigurath, as a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter summer. They wait, patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Dr. Armitage, associating what he was reading with what he had heard of Dunwich and its brooding presences and of Wilbur Waitley and his dim, hideous aura that stretched from a dubious birth to a cloud of probable matricide, felt a wave of fright as tangible as a draft of the tomb's cold clamminess. The bent, goatish giant before him seemed like the spawn of another planet or dimension, like something only partly of mankind, and linked to black gulfs of essence and entity that stretch like titan phantasms beyond all spheres of force and matter, space and time. Presently, Wilbur raised his head and began speaking in that strange, resonant fashion which hinted at sound-producing organs, unlike the run of mankind's. "'Mr. Armitage,' he said, "'I calculate I gotta take that book home. There's things in it I've gotta try under certain conditions that I can't get here, and it'd be a mortal sin to let a red-tape rule hold me up. Let me take it along, sir.' and I'll swear there won't nobody know the difference. I don't need to tell you I'll take good care of it. It wasn't me that put this D copy in the shape it is. He stooped as he saw firm denial on the librarian's face, and his own goatish features grew crafty. Armitage, half ready to tell him he might make a copy of what parts he needed, thought suddenly of the possible consequences and checked himself. There was too much responsibility in giving such a being the key to such blasphemous outer spheres. Waitley saw how things stood and tried to answer lightly. Well, all right, if you feel that way about it. Maybe Harvard won't be so fussy as you be. 
and without saying more, he rose and strode out of the building, stooping at each doorway. Armitage heard the savage yelping of the great watchdog and studied Waitley's gorilla-like lope as he crossed the bit of campus visible from the window. He thought of the wild tales he had heard and recalled the old Sunday stories in the advertiser. These things, and the lore he had picked up from Dunwich rustics and villagers during his one visit there. Unseen things not of earth, or at least not of tridimensional earth, rushed fetid and horrible through New England's glens and brooded obscenely on the mountaintops. Of this he had long felt certain. Now he seemed to sense the close presence of some terrible part of the intruding horror, and to glimpse a hellish advance in the black dominion of the ancient and once passive nightmare. He locked away the Necronomicon with a shudder of disgust, but the room still reeked with an unholy and unidentifiable stench. As a foulness shall ye know them, he quoted. Yes, the odor was the same as that which had sickened him at the Waitley farmhouse less than three years before. He thought of Wilbur, goatish and ominous once again, and laughed mockingly at the village rumors of his parentage. Inbreeding? Armitage muttered half aloud to himself. Great God, what simpletons! Show them Arthur Mackin's great god Pan, and they'll think it's a common Dunwich scandal. But what thing, what cursed, shapeless influence on or off this three-dimensioned earth was Wilbur Waitley's father? Born on Candlemas, nine months after May Eve of 1912, when the talk about the queer earth noises reached clear to Arkham. What walked on the mountains that May night? What rude mishorror fastened itself on the world in half-human flesh and blood? During the ensuing weeks, Dr. Armitage set about to collect all possible data on Wilbur Waitley and the formless presences around Dunwich. He got in communication with Dr. Hewton of Aylesbury, who had attended old Waitley in his last illness, and found much to ponder over in the grandfather's last words as quoted by the physician. A visit to Dunwich Village failed to bring out much that was new, but a close survey of the Necronomicon, in those parts which Wilbur had sought so avidly, seemed to supply new and terrible clues as to the nature, methods, and desires of the strange evil so vaguely threatening this planet. Talks with several students of archaic lore in Boston, and letters to many others elsewhere, gave him a growing amazement which passed slowly through varied degrees of alarm to a state of really acute spiritual fear. As the summer drew on, he felt dimly that something ought to be done about the lurking terrors of the upper Miskatonic Valley and about the monstrous being known to the human world as Wilbur Waitley. 6. The Dunwich Horror Itself came between Lamas and the Equinox in 1928, and Dr. Armitage was among those who witnessed its monstrous prologue. He had heard, meanwhile, of Waitley's grotesque trip to Cambridge and of his frantic efforts to borrow or copy from the Necronomicon at the Widener Library. Those efforts had been in vain since Armitage had issued warnings of the keenest intensity to all librarians having charge of the dreaded volume. Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home again, as if he feared the results of being away long. Early in August, the half-expected outcome developed, and in the small hours of the third, 
Dr. Armitage was awakened suddenly by the wild, fierce cries of the savage watchdog on the college campus. Deep and terrible, the snarling, half-mad growls and barks continued, always in mounting volume, but with hideously significant pauses. Then there rang out a scream from a wholly different throat, such a scream as roused half the sleepers of Arkham and haunted their dreams ever afterward, such a scream as could come from no being born of earth or wholly of earth. Armitage, hastening into some clothing and rushing across the street and lawn to the college buildings, saw that others were ahead of him and heard the echoes of a burglar alarm still shrilling from the library. An open window showed black and gaping in the moonlight. What had come had indeed completed its entrance, for the barking and the screaming, now fast fading into a mixed low growling and moaning, proceeded unmistakably from within. Some instinct warned Armitage that what was taking place was not a thing for unfortified eyes to see, so he brushed back the crowd with authority as he unlocked the vestibule door. Among the others, he saw Professor Warren Rice and Dr. Francis Morgan, men to whom he had told some of his conjectures and misgivings, and these two he motioned to accompany him inside. The inward sounds, except for a watchful droning whine from the dog, had by this time quite subsided, but Armitage now perceived with a sudden start that a loud chorus of whippoorwills among the shrubbery had commenced a damnably rhythmical piping, as if in unison with the last breaths of a dying man. The building was full of a frightful stench which Dr. Armitage knew too well, and the three men rushed across the hall to the small genealogical reading room whence the low whining came. For a second, nobody dared to turn on the light, then Armitage summoned up his courage and snapped the switch. One of the three, it is not certain which, shrieked aloud at what sprawled before them among disordered tables and overturned chairs. Professor Rice declares that he wholly lost consciousness for an instant, though he did not stumble or fall. The thing that lay half-bent on its side in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow ichor and tarry stickiness was almost nine feet tall, and the dog had torn off all the clothing and some of the skin. It was not quite dead, but twitched silently and spasmodically, while its chest heaved in monstrous unison with the mad piping of the expectant whippoorwills outside. Bits of shoe leather and fragments of apparel were scattered about the room, and just inside the window an empty canvas sack lay where it had evidently been thrown. Near the central desk a revolver had fallen, a dented but undischarged cartridge later explaining why it had not been fired. The thing itself, however, crowded out all other images at the time. It would be trite and not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it, but one may properly say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour are too closely bound up with the common life forms of this planet and of the three known dimensions. It was partly human, beyond a doubt, with very man-like hands and head, and the goatish, chinless face had the stamp of the Waitleys upon it. But the torso and lower parts of the body were teratologically fabulous, so that only generous clothing could have ever enabled it to walk on earth unchallenged or uneradicated. Above the waist it was semi-anthropomorphic, 
though its chest, where the dog's rending paws still rested watchfully, had the leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The back was piebald with yellow and black and dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, it was the worst. For here, all human resemblance left off and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen a score of long greenish-gray tentacles with red-sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. On each of the hips, deep set in a kind of pinkish, ciliated orbit, was what seemed to be a rudimentary eye, whilst in lieu of a tail, there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with purple annular markings and with many evidences of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind legs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians and terminated in ridgy-veined pads that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, its tail and tentacles rhythmically changed color as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles, this was observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge, whilst in the tail it was manifest as a yellowish appearance which alternated with a sickly grayish white in the spaces between the purple rings. Of genuine blood, there was none, only the fetid greenish-yellow ichor which trickled along the painted floor beyond the radius of the stickiness and left a curious discoloration behind it. As the presence of the three men seemed to rouse the dying thing, it began to mumble without turning or raising its head. Dr. Armitage made no written record of its mouthings, but asserts confidently that nothing in English was uttered. At first, the syllables defied all correlation with any speech of earth, but toward the last there came some disjointed fragments, evidently taken from the Necronomicon, that monstrous blasphemy in quest of which the thing had perished. These fragments, as Armitage recalls them, ran something like, Nagai, Nagaga, they trailed off into nothingness as the whippoorwills shrieked in rhythmical crescendos of unholy anticipation. Then came a halt in the gasping, and the dog raised its head in a long, lugubrious howl. A change came over the yellow, goatish face of the prostrate thing, and the great black eyes fell in appallingly. Outside the window, the shrilling of the whippoorwills had suddenly ceased, and above the murmurs of the gathering crowd, there came the sound of a panic-struck whirring and fluttering. Against the moon, vast clouds of feathery watchers rose and raced from sight, frantic at that which they had sought for prey. All at once, the dog started up abruptly, gave a frightened bark, and leapt nervously out of the window by which it had entered. A cry rose from the crowd, and Dr. Armitage shouted to the men outside that no one must be admitted till the police or medical examiner came. He was thankful that the windows were just too high to permit of peering in, and drew the dark curtains carefully down over each one. 
By this time, two policemen had arrived, and Dr. Morgan, meeting them in the vestibule, was urging them for their own sakes to postpone entrance to the stench-filled reading room till the examiner came and the prostrate thing could be covered up. Meanwhile, frightful changes were taking place on the floor. One need not describe the kind and rate of shrinkage and disintegration that occurred before the eyes of Dr. Armitage and Professor Rice, but it is permissible to say that, aside from the external appearance of face and hands, the really human element in Wilbur Waitley must have been very small. When the medical examiner came, there was only a sticky whitish mass on the painted boards, and the monstrous odor had nearly disappeared. Apparently, Waitley had had no skull or bony skeleton, at least in any true or stable sense. He had taken somewhat after his unknown father. And that was part two of The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. Next week, things really ramp up, and one of my favorite lines from any Lovecraft story gets said, and I'm really excited to get to that part. If you're enjoying the show and want to support it, please feel free to subscribe to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. You get early access to the show, assuming nothing happens to me, pray God and knock wood, and at the $10 tier, you get access to a bonus story, one of my favorite novels. Franklin Jones, brand new patron, welcome! Thank you for your support. And up to you, Sistardis, you're absolutely bonzer, mate. God, I hope I use that properly. Matthias Hansen, you got good taste. Alder Riley, you're incredibly awesome. Mark Vincent, you're fantastic. Thank you all so much for your support. I think that will about wrap it up this week. I hope you had a good weekend, and I hope you have a good week. Get vaccinated, wear a mask, and punch a racist in the face. See you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. If they don't, then they're kind of quiet down. Like, I expect them. Uh, oh, there's a period there. Ha! Uh, maybe if I paid attention to the punctuation, I'd be able to read this. Nowadays, there's no. And nowadays, there's more. There's more nor what I know myself. Good Lord. This is all written in dialect. So I'm just kind of reading it. And hoping it sounds okay. But sometimes the language structure is super weird. And it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguity. That is not how that word is pronounced. And it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguity.